Well, we are in the book of Ephesians again this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 is where I would direct you to go in your Bibles, and if someone wouldn't mind terribly uh, using one of the pew Bibles and directing me to the page number uh, so that I can share it with everyone else in the room, I would greatly appreciate that. Ephesians chapter 1, we will be starting in verse 3. 1159, thank you. Page 1159 is, is where it is in the Bibles in your pew. And so we'll be reading verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. And so we are uh, in the second sermon in our series on the book of Ephesians. And what's really cool, what I want to start out by, by pointing out to you is that in this, this next chunk of chapter 1, you have this beautiful Trinitarian unity. We start out in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us more about the work of Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then verse uh, 13 In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We have the work of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the sealing uh, gift of the Holy Spirit. And so as we make our way through this passage, I'm I'm mainly uh, justifying why I've broken it up into a few different sermons. Uh, Now, I will tell you right off the bat that um, putting this sermon together was a mighty struggle. Because I have a sense that in our context, you can't just toss out terms like election and predestination without trying to explain, at the very least, what we believe about that and why, which, I, which I, I, there, there was simply a longing in my heart to make that clear, as clear as I can in one Sunday morning anyway. So this sermon, going from verses 3 to 6, is going to extend into two sermons, this Sunday and next about the Father's gracious choice and what that means for us. So in short, where I'm going to be putting the focus is on this sense, this idea, sorry, this idea and this uh, 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 declaration that Paul makes in chapter 1, that the Father's chosen us and predestined us. And the next Sunday we'll get into what he means by chosen us to be holy and blameless and predestined us to be adopted as sons. But this morning, we'll be, so this morning we'll be introducing material in verses 3, 4, and 6, and then next Sunday going a bit more in depth into verse 5 as well. But we begin then with verse 3, which is where I'll ask you to join me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the, the text begins by, by Paul blessing God, which is not the same thing that you do when someone sneezes. It's not that kind of uh, expression of blessing. When a, when a cr- creature says to Creator, uh, uh, blessed are you, it's not the same thing as when God blesses people. 
God blesses us because of our need. When we bless God, that's really a synonym for praise. So, all praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us indeed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what on earth does it mean for us to be blessed? Let's start there. It's actually a very important question because we use it to describe our circumstances a lot, don't we? How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. The Lord is blessing me. (laughs) Okay. At the end of the service, a blessing goes out. We call it the benediction. Well, there are actually two words for blessing or, or to be blessed in the New Testament. One is the Greek word makarios, which that's what you find in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, right? Um, uh, blessed, are the, uh, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, right? blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. And that word means to be fortunate or happy or privileged. There's a second word, eulageo, right? which means to bestow favor or benefits. And when we talk about being blessed, right? How are you? Oh, I'm blessed. I think we usually mean both of these. That God has been favorable toward us, kind toward us, and that because of that, we are indeed happy and fortunate and and blessed. The word used here, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, is the second one. To bestow favor, or benefits. So then what does it mean to be blessed, as Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? What are spiritual blessings, first of all? The short answer is blessings given by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual blessings are blessings given by the Spirit. This is not spiritual as opposed to physical. This is spiritual as in coming from the Spirit. The Father has blessed us in the Son with blessings from the Spirit. And and as a reminder, the whole text then is Trinitarian. What are the blessings? Well, what does the context tell us? I mean, blessings in the heavenly places. If you were to be in the heavenly places with with, with God, what would you have? What were the blessings you would have? How about grace and peace? It's back in verses 1 and 2. Obviously, salvation. To be rescued from sin is to be with God. And then the third most obvious one is God Himself. No small blessing to get God Himself. As we say, a covenant relationship with God that we're given in salvation with the forgiveness of our sins. The blessing of God, the blessing of Emmanuel, and all that comes with it. And unless God blesses us with those blessings, from His vantage point, if you like, they remain inaccessible to us. Many of you are familiar with the work and the preaching of John Piper. He is perhaps most famous for his book, Desiring God, where he makes the case that God has created us to be totally satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Most of you you can probably finish that, right? In my opinion, Piper's second book, second best book, uh, very underrated, uh, much lesser known, is a small book entitled God is the Gospel. And where he argues that the greatest gift of the gospel is not grace or peace or forgiveness as magnificent as those things are. He argues that the great gift of the gospel is that we get God Himself. So God is the gospel. The good news is you get God. And so we learn that this God has saved us and has given us all we need for life and godliness. If there's more spiritual blessing available, it's already been given. It has already been given. That's a past tense verb. He has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ. <clears throat> and so for those who know Christ, there's not, in a sense, there's not heavenly blessing that God's withholding until you behave yourself enough and then He'll consider giving it. This is a past tense verb. And we're going to unpack that. I'm going to save that a bit more for next week about what it, what it means to be given every blessing. And while I do think some Christians labor under the idea that we only have part of it, but it's been given in Christ. If you have Jesus, here's the good news. If you have Jesus, gone is the, uh, gone is the uh, if I may, the argumentative distinction between being spiritual and religious. If you have Jesus Christ, you are both. <laughs> there you go. You are both. You have every spiritual blessing, indeed, and every religious one on top of that. And if you don't have Jesus, you are neither. Once you have Him, you have everything. That's the idea. So the Father has blessed us, and so we rejoice. The first point, then, is that we're blessed. The second point is that we're chosen. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He's blessed us even as He chose us in Him. That's in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then interestingly, at the end of verse 4, in the ESV is the start of a new sentence. Uh, again, we're going to save why that is for next Sunday. But the, basically, the, the in love in, in Greek can go either direction. Either it can finish out that first sentence or it can start the next one. Either, either direction is fine. Either direction preaches basically the same thing. But here, Paul introduces the doctrine of election. Us, us being chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be saved in and by Jesus Christ. And full disclosure, you are under the roof of a Presbyterian church where we believe in this thing called election and predestination. It is a controversial topic, but at the start, I want to be totally forthcoming with you. That you found yourself in a church where if you read a text like this and say, do you guys actually believe that? Yeah. We, we simply go, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what's, what's the difference between, sorry, between election and predestination? Because he uses the word uh, chose us in verse 4 and then predestined us in verse 5. Well, election obviously is the choice. Predestin prede predestination is the, uh, what it's for. So you have the choice and then you have the plan and purpose of the choice. Election is that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This does not make Him the author of sin, nor does it do violence to anyone's will, nor does God cease to use the realities of human action and choice and cause and effect. Predestination is that by the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men, and interestingly enough, some angels, are predestined unto everlasting life. Others are foreordained or passed over to everlasting death. They're very similar. Election is God choosing who will be His. Predestination, you can hear the word destiny or destination in there, is God knowing and decreeing what they will do. So what their sort of path of life will be. So, to go back to the full disclosure, yes, that is what we believe. And if that perplexes you, and if after today's sermon you are still resolutely perplexed, call me and let's get coffee. Okay? When I first started attending a Reformed church, it perplexed me too, and still does most days. It's why this sermon was 
well, a lot of heavy lifting. What we do not believe or confess with this is that it must mean a bunch of other things, right? It must mean human beings are robots. No. It must mean that we have no choice. We don't choose to be saved at all. We never exercise any choices. No. What I want to address this morning is that it is easy for us to get caught up and hung up by this doctrine. And I want to address why that is. I I think it's what I'm going to try to do is to do a little kind of spiritual surgery on our corporate heart, if you like, of why it is that we, as 21st century Westerners, get hung up by this doctrine. Okay, In Western culture today, I would certainly say American, I would include a lot of, a lot of European culture as well, we believe that our choices as individuals constitute our identity. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. And, and you probably already know it, <laughs> but I'll say it again. In, in, in Western culture, we tend to believe that our choices and the decisions we make constitute our identity. So you have to go about making choices, and the choices shape who you are. And those choices are motivated by your desires. So your desires, which uh, in our culture we teach wrongly, are, are immutable or unstoppable. Uh, that, that those desires define your identity and your choices. It's quite a weight and a burden to carry. I would argue it's why anxiety levels are so high. Part of why, anyway. You, you, you have to cut yourself out of whole cloth, as it were, with every decision you make and every impulse and feeling you feel. What's interesting to me is that in Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures, this is not really the case at all. In Eastern cultures, your choices are not as formative as your family, where you come from, and your society and culture itself. Where you come from is more important in those contexts than what or who you choose to be by your choices. The Western response to that is to say, that sounds so narrow-minded and limiting, right? That, That sounds like almost imprisoning. But Asian-American author, I found this this week, uh, her name is Gish Jin. She, she comments on the difference between the East and the West, and this is what she says. She says, choice in the West is very important. Everyone is always making choices. And honestly, a lot of those choices make us from an Eastern culture a little anxious. If you do a study where you're just sitting in an empty room and you're making a choice and you come from a more individualistic culture, you actually start to show signs of anxiety as soon as you have to make the choice. Because every little choice that you make, even in private, is a little loaded because it's defining who you are. Whereas in an Eastern culture, you feel like you just choose. In other words, when they make choices, it doesn't really have this overlay. And that's one of the reasons people in the East feel that actually we are the ones who are less free. Hmm. They would say, You have to define yourself every moment of your life? That sounds like a terrible prison. I actually think that the distinction that she brings out is really important in understanding why modern Westerners have an almost programmed discomfort when it comes to election and predestination. I mean, you bring it up, people might bristle. Even even some Christians can bristle. It's a sensitive topic, right? 
But if you struggle with these doctrines, I want to ask you to consider something this morning, especially if you're a Christian who believes the Bible. And that is, when these doctrines are brought up, what is your internal response? Do you, do you tense up? Do you get uncomfortable? Do you get irritated? Do you get anxious? For many, a, a doctrine like this can actually cause anxiety because some start to wonder, right? Well, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not elect? What if God didn't predestine me? What I want to point out, what I want to show you this morning in our text is that it never occurs to the Apostle Paul to entertain that line of questioning. And that should make us curious. Paul doesn't behave like we do when this topic gets brought up, if you like. And I I don't wonder if that should make us wonder about our behavior and our response to it. And, And question that a bit. When this topic gets brought up, it can cause us to get defensive or skeptical or anxious, it didn't do that to Paul. When Paul starts talking about election and predestination, Paul starts rejoicing and worshiping. And I think we should ask, why? And what is it that's keeping us from seeing this through Paul's eyes? When Paul brings it up, he gets joyful. He doesn't start debating He starts praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see is the fact that God's choice should not cause you to get anxious or frustrated or defensive. It should cause you to worship, Christian. It should. Because the work of the Father should cause us to rejoice. There was a fellow named Harvey Kahn who was a professor of world missions at Westminster Theological Seminary a number of years before his death in 1999. And before his professorship, hang on just a second on that quote, uh, before his professorship at Westminster, he was a missionary to South Korea. For a number of years, he mainly worked with uh, prostitutes in South Korea, sharing the gospel with them and trying to get them out of, of the trade. At that time, South Korea was a solidly Confucian-based society where prostitution, frankly speaking, earned you a lower, uh, uh, a lower social rank, a lower caste in the caste system that, that, that was low, if I, can, if I can be blunt, low even for prostitutes, okay? And what Harvey Kahn discovered was that the typical American methods of evangelism did not work in those contexts. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they would say, no, he doesn't. I'm scum. You're mistaken. Please go away. That was it. It was just, it was just the, gates, the gates were shut and sealed every time he tried with all the sort of methods that he had imbibed in a Western context. He was using a very American method. You see, Americans are individualists. We're very self-focused. We think a lot about self-actualization and achieving our dreams and becoming the best version of ourselves that we like the best. We have a very high opinion of ourselves. We think we're very important and very interesting. But we're also deeply insecure about it. And so a lot of American evangelistic methods tend to focus on God really, really loves you, Mr. Individual, Miss Individual. He's really interested in you and all your spectacular individuality. And he's objectively put his love and worth on you. So now you don't have to be insecure. And there's a lot about that that's true. I'm not not shooting all that down. 
What I'm saying is that while that might work in America, he was having zero success talking to these women about a God who loved them as the sort of entry point to Christianity. So one day, Harvey Kahn, being a good Presbyterian, decided to use the doctrine of election, if you can believe it. He began to tell them, I believe in a God who's a gracious king who rules the universe. He loves, but he doesn't love you because you're good or because you're moral or because you're humble or because you're surrendered. He actually just sets his love on certain people that he chooses. And if he loves you, it's simply because he loves you. And that's the only way you can come into this kingdom is if he's chosen you. And that made sense to them. They said, you mean he just, he just loves people? Just, just like that? Yes. Well, how do I know if he loves me? Well, when you hear about what Jesus has done, do you want that? Yes. You want him? Yes. That means he's drawing you in. Congratulations. You've been chosen. <laughs> Because you see, in their culture, right, they didn't have a lot of rights. These women were practically slaves. And so the idea that someone else was making the decisions already made sense. And, and they said, how do I know if I'm in, right? This king decides who's in and who's not. He chooses people to receive his love and grace and forgiveness forever. They said, how do I know if I'm in? Well, if you believe, that means he's already called and chosen you. So do you want this God? Well, yes. Great. That means he's already working on your heart. What do I do next? He would say, meet me at that corner at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon and I will get you to a safe house and get you out of the city. And he rescued a lot of women that way uh, out of their slavery. He was beaten up by the pimps and slave masters more than once. Here's the point. The fact that election and predestination bothers us is a problem with us. Not a problem with the God who calls and chooses and saves and forgives and cleanses. We are chosen and therefore we believe. And the fact that we believe is the evidence that we are chosen. That should cause our hearts to rejoice. That's what it did to Paul's heart when he thought we have been We've been called up and called in and brought in, chosen by our Savior to be forgiven, right? To be holy and blameless before Him is the language Paul uses. It should cause our hearts to rejoice. There's a fellow you've probably never heard of. I had never heard of him until preparing this sermon. But his name was, um, his name was Johann Berntz. He was a German reformer who was a contemporary of Luther, right? So Luther was doing his work uh, in, in Wittenberg and a couple of other places, and, uh, and Berntz was in another part of, uh, other parts of Germany doing very similar work to that of Luther. He was leading the Reformation in a different part, and this is what he said. He said, Predestination frightens many worldly people, so much so that they are bold enough to ask their Lord and Creator, why did you make me like this? But their complaints about predestination are completely silenced by this verse. He's talking about Ephesians 1. It is a huge comfort to spiritual people because when they are in trouble, they can rest assured and even boast in the face of Satan because they've been chosen by God from eternity. The Lord cared about you before the world was made, before you ever existed. So how much more will He care about you now that the world has been created and you have appeared in it? 
And there's a, there's a pretty significant false teaching about predestination and election that I want to address. It, it tries to get God out of this problem He's put Himself in. They'll say, well, what this text means is not that God like, like actually chooses us. What He does is He, he looks into the future and then he, he kind of sorts out who's going to freely choose Him and then He chooses those people. <laughs> I mean, is, is that what the text says? No, it says He chose us before the foundation of the world. If you need a timestamp reference, that's it. God, the Creator of the planets, chose you to be with Him forever before there was planets. And that should make your heart sing. Paul is reiterating here, actually, the very same thing that God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, if you're familiar with the text, and if you're not, it's going up on the screen. The Lord tells Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you hear that language? He basically says, there is nothing in you that caused me to love you. The reason I love you is because I love you and I keep my word. This is, this is very powerful for us and helpful for us because it is contrary to everything we think we know about how love works. We tend to believe that love is altogether dependent on whether someone continues to maintain the, the, the sort of uh, personality qualities or physical qualities that was the initial source of an attraction. So if it was their looks, or their personality, or their sense of humor, or they had a beautiful singing voice, or their great attitude, or their culinary genius, if, if those were the initial sources of attraction in, say, a romantic relationship, then those have to remain present for love to remain present. So, so goes the, the suppositions that are in the air that we breathe. But God tells Israel, as He says to all of His children today, Jew and Gentile, American and Ephesian, it was not because of anything in you. I love you because I love you. I chose you because I chose you. And this is something that is, uh, is, is a foundation for when, our faith, uh, for when our faith is weak, frankly. Because we need to know that there was nothing in me at the start. So it's not now that there's something about me that would cause God, cause God to abandon me. Because it was never about something in me at the start. He chose me because He chose me. But what's more important for you to realize here is that this doctrine is not given to you so that you can perplex your own soul for days and weeks and years trying to dig to the bottom of all God's mystery. Keep in mind, the only evidence that Paul has to be able to say he chose you, right? the only evidence that Paul has to be able to say that is the fact that they believe. That's it. He does not invite them into endless introspection. Look inside yourself until you're sure that you're sure that you're sure. 
as a way to confirm God's choice. This is given to you so that you can rejoice. That's the whole purpose of the text. And if it doesn't cause that in our hearts, then we need to examine our hearts because that's the whole point. It's not to feel high and mighty about a particular doctrine. And I have honestly never heard anyone say, God chose me, so that must mean there's something really special about me. Right? As though this gives you like bragging rights because of something in you. Quite the opposite. Right? That's why the before the foundation of the world bit is in there. This is given so you can say, God rescued me. God saved me. And it wasn't because I was spiritually sensitive than somebody else, more spiritually sensitive than somebody else. It wasn't because I was more open to the idea of faith and religion than somebody else. It wasn't because I was more interested in the things of God or that I was more interesting as a person that God chose me. It wasn't because I had everything right and perfect behavior or that I tried harder than most. It is because He loved me and He loves me because He loves me. This actually provides us again with a remarkable kind of security in God's love. Because if He chose us before the foundation of the world and not because of anything in us, then there is nothing you can do, Christian, to cause uh, to, to, to cause Him to give up on you or to lose His love for you. He has chosen us so that we can be holy and blameless before Him. And if you want to know what that means, come back next Sunday. I'm going to start to, start to tie this up with, if you'll go to verse 6. After talking about God's choice and God's predestination... He says, this is all done according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Our text starts with blessing. and verse 6, it ends with blessing. When we talk about election and predestination, it shouldn't frighten us. It should make us praise the glorious grace of God. That's what the whole thing is for. That's what the whole conversation is for. So do you have the sense, let me ask you this, those of you who have been a part of grace for a long while, I hope you have the sense, that's, I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it in a, a hope rather than a question, I hope you have the sense that forgiveness of sins is one of the most important centerpieces of our worship service. We talk about forgiveness a lot. We have time set aside in the service so you can silently confess your sin. If that wasn't enough, we then confess our sins together. If that wasn't enough, we then sing a song about our sin and our need. And so uh, after that, we do all that so that once more we can hear from the Scriptures the voice of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures saying, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. If that wasn't enough, after the sermon, we confess together in a few different formats, either a creed or something from Scripture, that we believe in the communion of the saints and the forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And if that wasn't enough, we come to the table together where we spiritually and mysteriously receive the flesh and blood of Jesus. And Jesus says that this cup is the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Well, why do we talk about that so much? Can you put up verse 6 again, bud? We talk about that so much so that you can praise His glorious grace. That is the whole purpose of talking about forgiveness of sin. So that we might praise 
His glorious grace. Because if we were chosen because of something in us, we would praise and thank God for making us so spiritually wise and receptive. If we were chosen because of something in us, we would praise God for fashioning us to be so much more clever than other people. But if it is God who chooses us to be holy and blameless before Him, if it is God who predestines us to be sons, we would scarcely take credit for the breath in our lungs that we use to praise His glorious grace. God has given us these truths, these doctrines, these realities, so that we might stand amazed. Not asking, well, I mean, if He, if he elects some, why doesn't He elect and predestine those people over there, those hypothetical people? It bothers me that there, that there are others. Well, first, you have no idea what God's business with those people over there even is. You don't. And second... The greater question would be, why is God gracious to anyone at all, ever? Why does God pour out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places on more than zero sinners? Why does God choose people to be holy and blameless before Him? Why does He predestine anyone for an adoption as sons to be called His sons? More on that next Sunday. The answer is because He means for you to rejoice and worship and praise His glorious grace. So maybe you have heard all this and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. So so I guess that means the Lord just hasn't chosen me. Oh well, what are you going to do? Biblically, the, the response to that is, my dear friend, please don't be so silly. Again, the evidence of God's choice and the way that God works in the world is not that you simply wake up one morning after being cracked over the head with the spiritual two-by-four, forced to believe against your will. It simply means you're given the grace to stop running from God. One uh, preacher put put it much better than I could. I've always liked this ever since I heard it. He said, The sign outside says, All may come and choose and believe. The sign inside says, salvation is of the Lord. So so today, again, you are being called upon to believe. To stop trying to invent and reinvent yourself with simply your choices and your impulses and your feelings. And instead, to be known by your Creator as holy and blameless, and adopted into His family. And when you choose, when you choose to come in, you will behold His grace and say, thank you, Father, for choosing me. All to the praise of His glorious grace. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Indeed, in his name. Amen. So our Father, we ask that you would bring in from the nations all of your people, that you would bring in from this nation all of your people, 
that you would bring in from the cities of Alexandria and Pineville and beyond all of your people who are called by your name. We ask that the great gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us, the one who forgives our sins, that you would refresh our hearts with faith this morning. And for those who are far off, that you would draw them near. In Jesus' name, amen.